0: Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah.
1: Live from LTCB Technologies, the show that puts you, the listener, in the driver's seat because you are the content. The phone lines are open to be a part of the program. It's a free call. 1-855-450-NOAA. That's 1-855-450-6624. Give me a call. We'll have a conversation about your tech questions or business and tech questions. Linux advocate, above all else, small business owner, now host of the only radio show centered around you, the listener. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. My name is Noah Chalaya. Starting off this hour is Jim in Virginia. Hi, Jim. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
2: Well, I didn't expect to be first at bat, but hi, Noah. Got a question about LibreOffice Writer. Go for it. In Linux, specifically in Linux Mint 17.3. Okay. Um, I have several files on which I've set up different profiles and uh, of, of page sizes. And basically, the one I'm working with right now is 5.5 by 8.5. Okay. So it's basically a half size. And no matter what I do... Um, Linux Mint insists that it has to print as an A five sheet. Mm. Which is somewhat wider and somewhat shorter. No way to change it, it's locked in. The profile's correct, the page format, your know, page format is correct. Everything's correct, and so you get to print and then nothing. So
1: What happens if you try to print it to a PDF?
2: Uh same thing, actually.
1: Okay. So the problem is in LibreOffice itself.
2: It seems to be yes. And the few times I've had access to a Windows machine with the exact same file, and it was just carried over with a USB door mm-hmm. drive or something, uh, the problem doesn't exist.
1: And have you tried it on? No, no, no. In, have you tried it on any other distro other than Mint?
2: Um, I could try it on Ubuntu. I do have an Ubuntu machine sitting around here.
1: I'd be interested to see. I'd be interested to see how that how that works. I, I tell you what. I'm not. You know. I, I do a lot of document uh, prep in LibreOffice, and and we have a number of different templates that we use for everything from the envelopes that we send uh, invoices out all the way to certificates when I do my uh, firearms training stuff. And uh, and I've not had any of those issues. And I'm using you know Ubuntu proper. So I'm trying to think of where I would go to even start troubleshooting that. I guess the first thing I would do is determine if it is in fact. A distro-specific thing. See if it's a Mint thing. What kind of documents are you printing?
2: Uh, usually, pages of books. On uh, um, say, we have nine by six books that we set up for uh, for for print, and uh, and so it has to be you know nine inches high, six inches wide, and those fail as well. But mm-hmm. basically, any user-defined size other than a standard size, now fails. And the thing is, it wasn't always that case. Earlier, somewhere back in the LibreOffice 4-point-something days, mm-hmm. this wasn't even an issue. And now it is, but I don't know if it's because of a change in LibreOffice or what might have caused that. So,
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's really strange. I'm so sorry, Jim, I don't have a better answer for you. I will uh, tell you what I'll do. I will. Um, I'll continue to kind of look into that. And uh, and I'll put it on my list of, of things to keep an eye out for, and I'll see if I can get you a, a, a better answer. Um, but yeah, if the if the settings are in LibreOffice are correct, um, I, I've just not experienced that, so I don't have a great answer for you. I would try and see if it works on another distro, and uh, unless you're married to to Linux Mint, there are some weird things that don't quite work right uh, in Linux Mint, na- namely um, some of the uh, some of the applet things that. Uh, that work just fine on regular Cinnamon, but don't work inside of Mint. And actually, one of my earliest frustrations was of, with Mint was um, we had installed a bunch of Linux Mint machines for a hotel. They were using it as their front desk kiosks. And it was actually a printer issue. Um, after like a week and a half or two weeks, the printer would just stop working. Couldn't figure out why. You go there, delete the thing, re-add it, work just fine. And after a week or so, it would stop working again. And uh, one of our technicians started digging into some of the various bugs that existed and found out that this has been a known problem for quite some time. And the answer has just kind of been, eh, you just kind of delete it and re-add it. That was the last time we installed Linux Mint for a uh, for an organization. It was uh, it was pretty abysmal. Uh, Blue Zero is calling. Hey, Blue. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. <laughs> hey, Noah. Hey, how can we help today? All
0: right. I got a problem when i am booting up my linux my linux lite uh, mm-hmm. desktop uh, the wallpaper after the initial boot screen after i, I log in my wallpaper goes to the left
1: okay what, what des- and, sorry what desktop environment are you using xfce <laughs> XFCE. And so when it, when it first comes up, it, it boots up on the left side. And then what did you say you do to make it go back to normal?
0: It just, it, it's like it reboots itself and it goes back. I have no idea if it's an XFCE bug. I talked to the developer, Jerry from Linux Lite. And this is the first time he has ever heard it. And it keeps on happening on my machine. So I don't know
1: if it's a Linux Lite thing or an XFCE thing. Hmm. Well, mm-hmm. uh, so you, so you, uh, yeah, if you've spoken to the developer and they didn't have an answer for you, uh, um, yeah, I mean, so what I would do is uh, kind of the s- similar answer I would I gave Jim. I would start. Let's let's figure out exactly what is causing this problem. Let's walk down a series of troubleshooting steps. So the first thing we're going to try is mm-hmm. let's see if XFCE does it on, on another, on another distro rather than Linux Lite. Let's see if you, you know, for example, maybe just Ubuntu with XFC, X Ubuntu. Um Try that, see if that's working and see if we can kind of nail down a little bit more specifically what is causing that problem. And then you can kind of go from there and say, okay, this is definitely an XFC bug or this is a, you know, this the particular distro that I'm using or it's, you know, maybe it's a specific wallpaper um, and maybe it's a specific wallpaper type. Instead of PNG, try JPEG, try, um, you know, those kinds of things and just kind of walk through and see if you can nail down specifically. But I, like the developer, have not uh, have not heard of that particular issue before. All right. Good friend of the show has been on a number of times before we went down to uh, all the way down to West Virginia to do some coverage of a school he was working on. Mr. Chris DeLuca is back with us. And one of the ongoing themes of the Ask Noah show is backup and data backup. We've kind of we've kind of circled around it numerous times. And Chris has been my silent partner in the backup world. Him and I both uh, do independent consulting. And so he's been trying a number of solutions with his clients and I've been trying a number of solutions with my clients. And we're trying to find a, a good, solid platform to both land on. And right about the time that we both kind of landed on CrashPlan, CrashPlan discontinued their service for home uh, users and you have to use their cloud-based service. You can't just install the software and have it sync to a local box, which of course is completely unacceptable for me. So, joining us back on the program is Mr. Chris Deluca. Welcome back to the program, Chris. How are you?
3: Thanks. No, I'm good. How are you doing?
1: Pretty good. So, um full disclaimer, you have you have dug in far deeper than I have with all of these different kinds of software. You've actually installed this stuff and you've tried it and you've seen what works and you haven't seen what works or seen what doesn't work rather. And this week, you have div- – well, actually, really, last week, I'm just getting to acknowledging it this week. You, uh, you landed on a solution that really struck home with me because it's software that can run locally on the computer uh, and sync. You can do bandwidth throttling, all these kinds of things, and it serves as a backup software. Tell us about that.
3: Well, um, the name of it is duplicity, not to be confused with duplicity. That you can install out of the uh, um, out of your package manager. Mm-hmm. Um, Duplicity is a local um, service that you run that can back up to FTP, SSH, uh, WebDAV. It also does things like uh, it'll utilize OneDrive, uh, cloud S3, Google Drive. Uh, there's, there's lots of others that, that it'll use as well as, um, local file shares, you know, Samba shares, that sort of thing. Um, I really, uh, I really landed on it, Like you, like you said, Crash Plan really just ticked me off about the time my client was looking for some offsite backups for some software. I said, yeah, there's this great piece of software I've been using for years. I back up my entire family's. And, you know, uh, we can utilize it now to test out and, you know, it's got this client share thing and, you you know, you can use my server. You know, we were going to go down that route and then, you know, exactly three days later, they dumped all their home users, which just, like you said, that really, you know, yes, they might have a good business, but business side, but I cannot recommend to my clients a company that dropped the people they built their software on the backs of, you know, I mean, they... They did all their testing on the home users, CrashPlan did.
1: Right. And, you so, know, the, the uh, thing that's frustrating...
3: On- no, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say the reason I settled on uh, duplicity, it, it, it has several things that it, that it does that most all backup software should do. Uh, it'll do incremental backups, uh, data deduplication. It has client-side uh, AES-256 encryption. Uh, you can also, I haven't dug into this yet, but I've read on their site, You can utilize GPG. GPG. You could probably use your own GPG key. Um, All that is encrypted before it even leaves the desktop, so you don't have to worry about putting it on uh, Google Drive or uh, OneDrive or Dropbox and and worried about them looking at your data because it's encrypted with a key you create on your machine. Um, I did things like... You know, pulled the network cable as I was backing stuff up. It picked up with an interrupted backup very well, took back off. uh, It tests the backups it uses. Uh, One thing it does that I do not like is, but I guess I don't know any other way it could do it, is it breaks the files up into um, 2.0 version's default is 50 meg files. And so I believe it does that mainly so it can test the contents of the backup regularly. Every time it backs up, it will grab one of those files, re-download it, and test it for integrity as as to whether or not it was backed up correctly. And it keeps track of which ones it does. And it it does them randomly, but it won't be the same one over again. Uh, A few things that I don't like about it is it requires .NET 4 file on Windows or Mono on Linux, and yes, it will run on Macs as well there is a web interface which you and I talked about so now every machine has a web server running on it yeah let's However, let's 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 talk
1: let's talk small. about the, let's talk about that for a second so one of the things that has always turned me off to uh, sync thing and stuff like that was that you have this web server control interface and i don't know what it is with software designers that 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 do this but basically what you wind up with even if there is a firewall and that firewall is shut off from other machines like the most common thing I see compromised is something on a web server or a web server that has a web server running. So why you would want a web server running on your local machine all the time drives me nuts. That said, I don't know of any other alternatives that I have local software that runs on my machine that I can, I can own and I can run. So even if they go away, a company goes away tomorrow, we're not stuck like we are with, with, with crash plan because with crash plan, it has to broker that connection. And it has the ability to tie into cloud-based services. So if you want to buy backups on Amazon or something like that, you have that ability, but you're not forced to do that. You can do that on your own machine. And so if anyone out there has a better suggestion, Chris and I are not happy about the fact that each of these machines are are now web servers. We just don't have a choice.
3: Well, and, and, and something that I didn't say at the, the start of this was it is completely free and open source software which was one of my precursors when Crash Plan is not, but, you know, you and I, again, have been talking about this, and so I said, you know, if I'm going to do this, because I'm trying to move some of my clients to, to Linux, and it has to run on Linux. My father is on Linux. It, I have to be able to back his data. It must be Linux. So, and the fact that it's free and open, you know, you can, if they do go away, you could hire someone to continue, you know, working on the project for you so you could get it now the crash plan um i'm sorry excuse me the duplicity version 1.4 something is not web-based it does have a desktop client gui interface in some ways
1: that's almost more infuriating so they went from a regular ui back to a web base
3: yes uh Some of what I was reading, because getting ready for this phone call, I decided to go doing some digging, and they made it so it could run headless on, say, uh, a FreeNAS or something like that. They wanted it to be able to run headless, and the only way you can control headless, well, I guess the easiest way, is a web interface. (laughs) But by default, the web interface is only supposed to allow local host to connect. So you have to manually go in there and change that. Okay. Well,
1: I mean, it's better than nothing. But here's the thing. Again, we ran into a brick wall. You and I have, between the two of us, we've looked at every possible software combination. Well, I shouldn't say every possible conversation possible, software combination, but you and I, we've looked at services and we've looked at local software and we've looked at ways that you and I were invented our own. In fact, we had a brief conversation about, you know, hiring a development team and actually building the thing for, for ourselves, because it was, you know, we were just so frustrated. I don't know of anything better, but this seems like a really great solution. I've played full disclaimer. I have not actually put this into production. I've played with it just very minimally. Um, I was going to have this last weekend. I was hoping I'd have some time that I could go actually spin it up uh, on actual production machine and see how it plays out. And then as it turns out, I got to a point where I was like, man, this is the first night in like a month. I'll have a chance to actually get more than three hours of sleep. So I, I chose sleep over doing my test. And Chris yelled at me for that today. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, but no, I, I think that the, the duplicity is, is really a great option. So if you're looking for a backup solution, because, you know, one of the things, Chris, and you and I have talked about this, too one of the things that we run into a problem with is people don't really understand what it is they're trying to, what it is it means to actually back things up. And and I've always said any backup is better than no backup. The backup you have, even if it sucks, is better than no backup uh, backup at all. And that includes, you know, just file-syncing software. But uh, this is, is true backup where I'm scheduling a specific time. It's only calling out, so if I get infected with some sort of virus or malware or crypto locker. I can roll back in time to this last time when things weren't infected. It's not a constant sync, right?
3: Right. Correct. It is not a constant sync. It it is scheduled, and uh, and again, it only yeah, it only runs when 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 you ask it to. The scheduling is not as um, refined as I would like it to be. Uh, some of my you know one of my clients, uh, I back their server up every hour. Um, At my day job, I back our main server up every 15 minutes. I do not believe I can do that with duplicity.
1: You can't schedule it that often, or
3: I do not believe you can schedule it that often. In fact, that's I am apologized for not having dove in that. No, day.
1: that's that's fine. I mean, here's the thing: this was early days for all of us, right? Like, none of us have really, you know, have you know, we're all still kind of digging in and, and trying to learn about this, right? Yes. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much yeah. for coming on, Chris. We really, you know, thank you very much for the call. We really appreciate you having you and taking your time uh, to, uh, to stop in the Ask Noah show and tell us. And of course, we at the Ask Noah show, we will continue to keep an eye on what is going on with backup software. By the way, huge apologies to anyone that's watching live or on YouTube. We're having a bit of an issue with our chat room and that is uh, that is getting worked out as we speak. So hopefully we'll have that up real soon. Carson is calling from Michigan. Hi, Carson. Welcome to the Ask Noah show.
4: Uh, hi, Noah. Um, thanks for having me on. Um, and I just wanted to first uh, thank you um, for all you do for Linux and open source. I've been li- listening to a Linux Action show, well, since before you were on it. Um, but I've I've heard all of your shows that you've done, and I've been listening to Ask Noah since it came out. And I just want to say uh, a huge thanks for uh, all you do. Well, thank you, sir. I appreciate having you. Thanks for calling in tonight. How can we help? Mm-hmm. Um, well, so I'm a computer science student at uh, Michigan State at the moment. Um, and I'm taking an online class, and they require me to use Microsoft Visual Studio, which is really annoying um it's only c so I don't see why we have to have all the overhead of visual studio but he seems the professor seems pretty adamant about having us use it so um I of course don't deal with any of that Microsoft crap when I can so uh I have um k d e neon currently running on a desktop and um following your advice about virtual machines, I decided to go with Manager instead of using um, VirtualBox, which I've used in the past a lot. Um, And I just want to know how I can get, like, the best possible performance out of it. And also um, get some creature comforts like uh, the mouse pointer integration and um, the desktop display automatic scaling um, that VirtualBox has. Because I I haven't been able to work that out. I did find the IO drivers um, hosted by Fedora, The Fedora project, but for some reason, I I just can't figure out how to install them. I tried the guest agent, but it hasn't seemed to have done anything. So I just wanted to know what I can do to... Yeah. Make my Windows 10 VM as bearable as I can.
1: Okay, so just let me recap. I just want to make sure I'm understanding this correctly. So basically, you have mm-hmm. you have Libvert D on the back, and then you're using Virt Manager, yeah. and then you're connecting into a Windows 10 VM, and you're looking at it, and you're like, "This looks like crap compared to what it was with VirtualBox, which literally feels like I'm sitting at a Windows 10 computer."
4: Yeah, basically, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, the performance isn't all that bad. I mean, there's some lag I noticed when typing, which is a little annoying when trying to write code, but um, it's like, it's bearable, but um, it doesn't do, like, the display scaling. So if I enter full screen, um, it kind of stretches it out in whatever aspect ratio it has. I think the max resolution I can get on this is, like, uh, 1400 by 1050 or some weird number like that. Um, and like with VirtualBox, if you install the guest additions, it will automatically resize the display of the virtual machine to match whatever the size of the window is. Um, and also, the mouse pointer integration is a little weird. Um, well, it doesn't exist in VertManager, Manager at least. Like with VirtualBox, if I move my mouse over the screen, it will automatically switch between the VM and not. But with this, um, I have to Control Alt L to release the pointer. And I mean, I realize I could change the shortcut. Um, to something else, but it's weird because when I hit it, sometimes it also locks my KDE session, which gets a little annoying.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. All right. So let's dive into this a little bit. So first of all, um, mm-hmm. what Libvirt is designed for is running servers, I- any kind of server, and it's designed to be run uh, headless. It's and so it's not. It's well. Let me continue. I will get to. I'll get to how you can solve this. But basically, the idea is that you're running it on a on a server and then and that that server's headless it has no display attached to it and then Vert manager just allows you to get console access to the computer if you have to make some crazy change or do something to it right so virt manager itself yeah. and it's just using VNC to what we call screen scrape the inside of that VM so it's not a very responsive way to do a computing environment they never really intended you to to work on it you know if you're if that's your primary workstation working on it 7 or 10 hours a day so is it, right. so so then that leaves us with two questions is, 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 is vert manager liberty? Is that, is that still a good solution for if I want to virtualize a desktop infrastructure? And then the second question is basically what you call to ask me is how do I make that happen where it actually feels like I'm sitting on metal rather than like I'm back in the 1990s. Right? So the, the answer to the first question is yes, we use it all the time for desktop management. What you have to do is you just have to kind of think about the problem and then you start, If you think about the way they kind of design the system, then you start coming up with the solution. So what I mean by that is if I gave you a Windows 10 VM and it was sitting on a a server that was in a data center, well, how would you connect to that Windows 10 VM? You could use manager, but it would be even slower if it was going over the Internet. So traditionally with Windows, we use the Remote Desktop Protocol or RDP. And there's a client on Linux called Remina and and RDP is oh. for all the bad things I have to say about Microsoft RDP is fantastic I mean it is just remarkably uh, great it the way the the algorithms and the way they have combined to get RDP to actually work literally feels like you're sitting at the computer. And so, what you have to do is you install the your your server, your Windows 10 guest, and then you just you close Vert Manager and you forget that 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 is running on your local computer. And then you act as if how how do I how would I connect to a to a Windows 10 desktop? And so, in in the Windows world, we'd use RDP. Now, if you take RDP and because it's actually sitting on that same machine, you can scale the RDP settings all the way up. It will feel just like metal. And in fact. So much so I I have done I have done uh, video editing over RDP before and not that it's a fantastic experience, but it's definitely doable. And we had a caller that called in a, a month or so ago that was talking about doing architectural drawings. I think that's what it was. Architectural drawings, something like that in auto or maybe it was SketchUp. I think he was doing SketchUp, um, but he was doing, uh, you know, uh, drawings, which, of course, as you can imagine, you know, requires, uh, you know, a very crisp display. And it also requires the mouse to be very responsive. Um, and he hasn't called back. So I, hopefully that worked when I gave him the same suggestion, but that's what I would do. And I would, I would choose Remina or the other client I've been using lately, just because it's so brain dead, stupid, stupid to set up is the X go client actually supports RDP. And let me tell you why that's particularly greater. Maybe it doesn't apply to you specifically, but it might apply to somebody else. If you have two different remote computing environments, so maybe one's a windows 10 environment and one's a Linux environment, you can use X to go to get almost the same performance as RDP has on the Linux side.
4: In fact, I, I would say it is the same. I would say it is the same. The only thing that so I've used, good. I've used them. Um, I've used Mexico before. I have um, a server that oddly enough is running on a Mac pro, but it obviously doesn't run Mac OS. It's running uh, Debian. Right. But yeah, I've used Mexico um, and I've been really impressed with it. But yeah. I forgot. Um, I remember you've mentioned using RDP with uh, virtualized environments like that before. And I, I've forgotten to, to do that. So I'll, I'll definitely look
1: into that. Um, yeah, do that. I, yeah. I think that will solve your problem. And uh, not only that, if you're if you if you're familiar with x go that's just one of the options inside of the X2Go client is RDP. And so then, so for example, on my laptop, I have a bunch of clients... Um, that have if they you know if they don't have anything we'll just use simple help because simple help works good enough, um, but it's nowhere near as responsive as RDP is or X to go for that matter, um, and so what we'll do is if there's a client we work with on an ongoing basis usually what we'll do is forward those RDP ports or if it's Linux we'll forward those you know an SSH port, um, and you know there's been some talk about uh, Microtech routers, in the Ask Noah uh, show Telegram group. And uh, going back at the the, uh, the pros and cons and stuff like that. One of the things that's really nice about Microtech that you can't do on some of the inter uh, some of the entry level consumer grade routers is let's say I have uh, 15 clients. I can actually go through and say this all the ports on the inside on every individual clients are all 22. So let's say I have workstations one through 10. They're all running SSH on port 22. I can go into Makertech and I can tell it when you receive a que- request on the outside for port 2222, forward that to port 22 on workstation one. When you re- receive a request for, on port 2223, forward that request to port 22 on workstation two, and so on, so or, you know, and so on, so forth. And what that allows you to do is I can access a whole bank of systems without ever having to actually touch the local configuration on those systems. Or in some cases, like with RDP, there's no easy way to modify port 3389. You have to go into like the registry and it's just, it's just a mess like most of windows. So, um, the ability to have an enterprise grade router for 35 bucks again is if you're just getting into this business or you're going to support other people, those are the kinds of things that you look at and the kind of features that are sometimes overlooked. And you say, well, what, you know, th- there's all these options here. Why are there all these options? Because you will use them. I promise it's, you'll get there. Just it might take a little bit. James is calling from Idaho. Hi, James. Welcome to the Ask Noah Show. Hey, uh, I've
5: had Hello.
1: Hi there. How can we help, James?
5: Um, I'm I used to have a lot of backups this some of these tape back to ninety five, but all my smoothes have dramatically failed and left me in limbo I mean multiple tape drives, the removal card you know, the removal card drives I tried those, the RAM disk failure. Then someone talked me into um burning DVDs and putting printing the labels on this coming look card folder that was supposed to secure the backup it of course, no, the question of how that worked out my current one is thumb drive failing and then the company telling me i'm abusing the drive okay any ideas on backup cheap
1: yes yeah, so i'm sorry you're a little I'm, I'm having a little bit of difficulty understanding so you're asking for what is a cheap way to back up your data
5: yeah because i've been out of the loop because of all the uh, bad um, all my other solutions have been nightmarish. So I've been trying away from backup. You know that's kind of probably stupid, but when you when the thing has failed dramatically, there you've been suggested to you. You kind of go, oh
1: yeah, sure. Go,
5: no one's going to go to another failure.
1: No um, worries. Well, let me let me give let me give you let me give you some basic ideas. So one is flash media is very cheap um spinning media is even cheaper. So if you go look at a 4 terabyte Western Digital Blue desktop drive you're looking at like 79 bucks. Um so you start breaking that out cost per gigabyte it's exceptionally cheap. Um so what do we use what software do we use how do we actually back that stuff up? Well the most simple way to back up a machine James is with rsync. And rsync can be uh as simple you know as a single command and we I had the, there is a command in an in, in earlier show notes. I will go find that command and link it in this show notes again for you. Um, but basically there is a command that we just, it's kind of a stock uh, command that we use to sync our clients when they go to, when we go to backup a server. Now our clients are typically, we're doing it over SSH because we're going from one client to the other, but you could just, you could modify that line. Just remove the SSH and then the IP address and, all, and the username and stuff like that. But basically the idea is rsync, source, destination, and it will automatically decide if anything has changed. It'll delete files that have been deleted, it'll add the files that have been added, it'll modify the files that have been modified. It is available on every Linux distro by default. And, yeah, you can literally just go buy a four-terabyte drive and start backing up your data. Super simple, super straightforward. Uh, it will not let you down. Um, it's been a tried-and-true method for years in the IT industry, and I highly recommend it. Phone lines are open, 1-855-450-NOAA. It's one 450 6624 or live at AskNoahShow.com. So this is the second episode that has been composed, written, and planned on the Smart 3000 um the second full episode and uh, and we still have full batteries so the alpha smart 3000 continues to be a great investment um about 10 years ago i western digital came out with this media player and it sold at best buy for about $80 the thing was so amazing the th- uh, w- it, the thing that was so amazing about it was not that it could connect to a Samba share directly. It could connect to NFS, which, I mean, 10 years ago to find an embedded device at a big box store that even knew what NFS was, much less could connect to it, was, you know, amazing. Or it had two USB ports and you could plug media directly into it. But the most the most incredible thing about thing about this box was that it would play literally every file known to man. MKVs, AVIs, MP4s, MPGs, I mean, whatever you threw at this box, it would play it. Now, at that time, that was a remarkable difference because it was I had the first box I bought was a Roku. And this was back when the Roku was like a tube. It was before it had streaming services and stuff like that. It did everything over DLNA um, and it was a real pain to set up. But the Western Digital also, in addition to all these files, was able to open ISO files and play them. Now, the advantage of that, if you haven't heard me talk about this before, is having the actual DVD ISO, the DVD image, is fantastic because it means that you no longer have to be concerned with keeping and storing a physical DVD collection. The ISO is an identical copy. Menus, languages, subtitles, special features, everything exactly the way the DVD is. It is literally taking the DVD and putting it on a hard drive so that you can recall that DVD at any time without ever having to actually have access to that DVD. And over the years, I've taken flack from a lot of people because I insist on having an exact copy of that DVD. And yet time and time again, I've been able to, I've had people over at the house and we'll be sitting talking and they'll say, oh yeah, did you ever see this special feature or this particular thing behind the scenes, blah, 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 and the new James, yeah, I have that, here, let me pull it up. Boom, there we go. Or I'll travel around the world, various parts of the world and I, I wanna learn the languages. And, uh, and so I come back home and I wanna sit down and watch a movie, some of my favorite movies, the ones where I already know all the words and I wanna watch it in a different language. And those are all things that I could have never planned for. I could have never predicted, and it it has served me well through the years to have an exact copy of the DVD. So to this day, I rip the entire disc to an ISO format, and my beloved Western Digital Live players play them flawlessly. And those little guys, one of the things that is not found on players today is the little red-white and, and red RCA outputs. And... I don't use them very often. 90% of the time, they're hooked up over HDMI. But when my wife outgrew her old vehicle, we put her in a Suburban, and that had a built-in TV. And it didn't take me very long to realize that the built-in DVD player that skipped every time we drove down the road just needed to get ripped out. And so now there is a fantastic little Western Digital TV Live with 120-gig SSD attached via USB at the back. And while they continue to be phenomenal players, even today, and they still continue to play every file I throw at them, including, by the way, the latest Blu-ray rips, the ISO Blu-ray rips, I am painfully aware that I am kicking the can down the road because at the end of the day, Western Digital is not making any more of these devices. And they continue to get harder and harder to find on eBay. They're almost impossible to find at this point and brand new on eBay, which is how I preferred to buy them. Now, the good news is because there's no moving parts inside of them, they're all flash-based media, there's really nothing to fail on them. They don't ever really break. I have had one die, and I suspect it was because of heat uh, overheating. There also was a particular firmware version that works very, very well. Towards the end of their lifeline, Western Digital tried to push a new firmware that would allow you to watch YouTube and and uh, and, and um, what, do you, what do you call it uh, Netflix and, and all of those on uh, Hulu, all of these online streaming services. and it kind of sort of worked, but it overtaxed the processor to the point that the box would heat up and overheat. And so there is a special procedure that you can perform. You can modify the old firmware to make it think it's even newer firmware. You can plug it into the box and you can roll these boxes back to the ideal firmware. I think it's 2.01.86. And if you do that on all of these boxes, they work flawlessly for playing local media. Now, the first review I ever did on the Linux Action Show was a review of Kodi. And if you haven't heard of what Kodi is, it's the world's best home theater software. It's designed from the ground up to run your home theater and it does it better than absolutely everything else out there on the market. And that includes proprietary solutions, except Cody's open source. And they have taken home theater and taken it to the next level. They have taken because, see, the thing is, everyone wants to just hook a computer up to their TV. Everyone says, I'm going to buy a home theater TV box. And I have nightmares of the original Linux uh, home theater system that I forget the name of the project, uh, Linux MCE, that's what it is. And uh, one of these days I'm gonna, I'm gonna go find the posts that I made because they're still on their form. I'm gonna go find them and we're all gonna have a good laugh at them because I was so angry and so upset at Linux, it was in my newbie days. But a lot of people try and do that. They try to hook a, a regular computer up to their TV. But how do you control it? A lot of people buy a little tiny RF keyboard, but the, here's the thing that you don't understand. Us nerds, us geeks, we are okay with having a giant 120-inch display for our desktop. But the reality is Canonical didn't design their desktop for home theater. And your wife and your kids, they don't want to be clicking and dragging around windows. They don't want to be typing letters on a tiny little keyboard to be able to watch a movie. Kodi solves all of that because the interface is specifically designed to be used on a TV. Now, the first time I ever reviewed Kodi it was an abysmal review. And I don't mean that the review of Cody was, I don't mean that I thought the software of Cody was abysmal. I mean that my job of reviewing Cody was abysmal. Um, My understanding of Cody was that it was home theater software. So basically I went into it thinking, oh, this is a software that is going to replace my Western digital TV live. And so I expected it to work like an appliance. And, what I found was it felt like a hack-together bad science project running on my computer. I noticed that when I installed Kodi, there was no way to connect to a network. You had to exit Kodi to go out to control any of the network settings. You had to exit Kodi to go and change the, you know, volume settings on the computer, on the sound output. All of the things that needed to be tied into the actual media center had to be controlled from the operating system, which defeated the entire purpose of having an interface that I could control all from my, you know, remote control, keyboard, whatever that was optimized for the TV. I tried to play my ISO files that I had ripped and those were not working if they opened at all. And I knocked Cody pretty hard. I was pretty upset. Um, And then after a while, I was still on the air, even throwing my criticism at it. uh, What I found out from the audience was that my, it was my own ignorance As you guys, you guys in the audience you came to my rescue and you kindly gave me a knock on the head and, uh, you told me to try OpenELEC. And of course I'm on the air, and I've been playing with this for a week now, and so I'm not very happy with it. And now people are saying, use this OpenELEC. And I said, what is this OpenELEC? It's some sort of crazy tiling desktop manager probably that further hacks away the fact that this software doesn't do what it's supposed to do? That's probably what it is. And uh, no, (laughs) actually it's not. Actually OpenELEC is exactly what you guys told me it was, which is an open source appliance that wraps around Cody so that it, it brings Cody to run independently on a device. And of course, not only can you change the the network settings and stuff like that, you can change the the host name and, and, and everything you'd need to modify is in OpenAlex. So that, that really was what I should have been reviewing instead of Cody, the software that sits on top of it itself. And if I hadn't been so stupid, if I understood, you know, the difference between those two and, and what I was reviewing, I, I would have done a much better job. Needless to say, I realized how dumb I was and, uh, Turns out the audience is always right, and essentially Open Elect was perfect. And um, so I installed it on a PC and I tried it, and it opened my ISOs perfectly. It it ran perfectly. I was able to set all the things I wanted to set right from the uh, right from the machine. But I still had one problem. Um, the hardware. It was still a hack. You had to use a computer, and there was no elegant way to control it. So I was I had you know a USB keyboard dragged across my living room and that that lasted all of like a day. And uh, we have a rule in my house. I'm not allowed to do projects uh, anywhere but one room downstairs, which we call the lab. And the reason for that is, as any of you geeks know, it's like, I need a display. Well, here's a display, set that up. Oh, now I need a, a mouse. Oh, here's a mouse, I plug that in. I have a keyboard, I need that. And oh yeah, I need another display for this thing. And I need some ethernet cables for this and power for that. And pretty soon, you know, whatever room you're in starts to look like an octopus and there's these cords draping all over the place. It drives my wife's nuts. So I have to do all of my work downstairs in, in, in what we call the lab. And I was doing this in the living room and uh, I made it about an hour before she's like, get that thing out of here. It looks ridiculous. And I'm like, okay, well, I, we'll work on it. I'll work on it. So this year I'm at scale and I'm talking to the Cody guys and saying, you know, this is really great, but I wish it was more productized. I wish I could just buy a Cody box. Like I can buy the Roku and I could control it with a remote. And they said, you need to, you need to look at the flerk. You don't know what the flurk is. You got to play with the flerk. So the flerk, if you're not familiar with it, is a tiny little USB IR receiver that can be programmed to accept commands from literally any remote control. Noah, why in the world would you want to use an IR for this? Well, because IR, infrared, is the great equalizer of the home theater world. While many remotes, so a lot of remotes today, they're using Wi-Fi direct, they're using Bluetooth, the problem is most devices still don't support it. And all, so a lot of remotes do, but not all of them. Um, But especially when you start trying to integrate into really high end devices like um, Sunfire, for example, Uh, when you start going to, you know, abstract devices like projectors and stuff. I mean, a lot of those even are catching up to some of the, you know, IP control and and Bluetooth control and Wi-Fi direct control. But a lot of them aren't, especially, you know, when Epson sits down to make a great home theater projector. And I think Epson makes the best one out there. um, It's a really great projector but it's designed to be a really great projector. They don't put any they don't pay any attention to the you know bluetooth or the updated, you know, ip control or any of that crap. They don't care about that stuff because they're just making a really really high-end projector. Um, similarly, if you look at if you if you have satellite boxes or cable tv boxes, those are not going to support those things. High-end processors, high-end amplifiers, any of that stuff, but they all use ir. But then somebody some, some of you are out there and you're like, "No, ir is a pain." because everything has to be pointed in the proper direction. Not true. URC, my favorite uh, universal remote company, they make an RF base station. They also make an IP base station, I think. But basically the remote connects to the base station via RF. So radio frequency, the kinds that you don't have to point anywhere, can work anywhere in the house. And then the base station networks to all of the IR blasters that go on all of the devices. So picture this, you have a kitchen and you don't want all of, there's no good place to mount your media player. Or maybe you have a satellite subscription, so you have you have these five satellite receivers and you don't want to mount them underneath your TV because that it looks ugly. Or maybe you even have digital TV, the, even the cable providers are requiring you to have these digital cable boxes, right? You don't have to do all of that. What you can do is you can put all of those devices downstairs in a rack and you just run HDMI balance up to each TV so if you're not familiar what the Balin is, it basically turns a network cable into an HDMI cable. Because H- <laughs> HDMI is very expensive to make big runs with it. Cat5 is cheap. So you run Cat5 up to these TVs, you put a balun in each end, you plug the HDMI into whatever your source is, and then you put these blasters on all of the equipments downstairs in your equipment rack, and now you can control any TV in the house with any remote in the house. And it also means you can start tying into your automation systems. You can tie into the lights, you can tie into the air control systems, you can tie into a Kronos controller, which will kick off, you know, macros of sorts, turn these things on, switch these inputs, all those kinds of things. And this really speaks to looking at the big picture instead of gimmicks, which is very difficult for a lot of people to do when you're just browsing Best Buy. It's very, very tempting when you walk into Best Buy to go, Oh, look, that smart device says that I can buy it for $55 and it just will let me tie it to my phone and I can do this. And that works. But it doesn't, it's not looking at the big picture. And if you sit back and you say, okay, I want to actually plan my entire house out. I want to plan how everything is going to work from the ground up. If you actually sit down and plan, then you start looking at, well, how do I make this thing talk to that thing? How do I make that thing talk to this thing? And you eventually get to a point where you say, I have to have one universal way that I can control all of these things. So there's virtually no downside to using IR as long as it's paired with an IR blaster. And uh, so I got to a point where I could control my Kodi box with IR, but it was still a hack because now there's this dongle that has to hang out of the box and it's still a computer looking thing. And uh, so it still wasn't very elegant. And then I found WeTech. And if you haven't heard of WeTech, and we're going to have a link in the show notes, but WeTech makes a device called the WeTech Play 2. And the WeTech Play 2 is a custom built box. You can just buy it and just take it out of the box and start using it. It is a dream device because it's a device that ships from the manufacturer with OpenELEC on it. It's preloaded, so all you have to do is pull it out of the box and plug it in. And now you're using OpenELEC. Fantastic. Exactly what I was looking for. Um, and so for a while, that was my plan, is I was going to replace my beloved Western digital TVs with these um, WeTech Play 2 boxes. And uh, and, and, so, and the the thing that had kept me from actually doing it was... There was never a time I sat down to do something on my Western Digitals where they didn't work. Like even today, they still play all of my media just fine. They do everything I want it to do. And so it's, it's very difficult for me. Even the the barrier of having all of this stuff mounted, and I, I'll, I'll tweet out a picture or something like that later today. If anyone's interested, just tweet me, say so you're interested, and I'll tweet you a picture. But I mount all of my devices. I When when we moved into our new house, we tore I tore the sheetrock down to the studs in, in the rooms that we were remodeling. And I dropped power and... Uh, A couple drops of cat six to where the TV location was going to be and so the TV floats on the wall, you know, you don't see any wires whatsoever nothing hangs down to a power outlet nothing you don't see anything and the media box then mounts just under the TV and the TV mount is spaced such that the, the media player can slide just a little bit under the base of the TV so even the HDMI wire and the power wire for the media player can't be seen. And, uh, and so once you get done putting that much work into making everything look very nice, it's very difficult to go take it back all apart and, and do it all over again with a different media player. So I'm having the back of my mind, I'm, I'm going to do these WeTech TVs. And then all of a sudden, uh, Linux Fest Northwest hit. And Chris has been a proponent of the NVIDIA Shield for, I, I think, as long as he's been playing with media players. And he he originally, I can't remember the exact story. I think it was something along the lines of like, he got one from, of, he bought one from a viewer, he bought one secondhand or somebody loaned him one or something like that. Um, but I, I, if, if memory serves right, he kind of stumbled into the Western Digital, or I'm sorry, the, the Nvidia Shield, and uh, and then he just loved it. And he kept trying to, to you know, uh, you know, surpass it. And he tried, you know, the Apple TV, and he tried the Rokus, and he tried everything he tried. He just kept coming back to you. This is just such a great box. I just, even though it's designed as a game console, it just makes a really compelling media player, and I can't seem to beat it. And so... I, you know, I sat there and I was I was using it because he had one at the at the uh, studio and I have nothing against it because the the Nvidia Shield, it runs Cody because it's Android based. But I kept thinking I'm like three hundred dollars is a lot of money to spend on a device just to play media. And then I started using it. And I have to tell you something, guys, those things are the fastest, most responsive, most flexible media player known to man. They are insanely fast. In fact, the reason is because they're designed as a game console. And I've never really played any games on it. I don't really have any intention of playing any games on it. I might play N64. I found out the other day that there is a uh, N64 emulator available for the NVIDIA Shield. So I might give that a shot. But I don't really have any interest in, in playing games on it. But they are just a fantastic media player. So fantastic, so overpo- overpowered that you literally never wait for anything. And, but here's my caution to you. Do not compromise, do not compromise. There is a cheaper $200 version of the Nvidia Shield. It does not have IR, and it does not have any real onboard storage. It has like 16 gigs flash memory and that's it. Don't do it, don't do it. You might be tempted, but don't do it. I am not a big fan of change. I like to buy something, that's why I buy very high-end stuff is because I wanna buy it once, and I never really want to have to replace it. Or if I have to replace it, I want it to be a very long time. I want it to, I want to buy the thing with the most longevity. And really, if you talk to other people that are really, really stingy, you'll find that those people also tend to buy very high quality stuff because they, they want it to last and they don't want to have to keep doing it. Um, so when I buy something, I want it to last 10 years, 10 plus years, if I can get it to. And I promise you, I promise you, if you buy the pro version, it is very likely that it's a 10 year investment. It is a very good device and it is so overpowered and so over engineered that, I mean, I can't speak to it as far as a gaming device again, but if we're talking about running Kodi, it, it is it is so overbuilt that it is, going to, it is going to easily run for years and years and years and years and years. Do not compromise, do not sell yourself short. Get the one with the built-in hard drive, get the one with IR, it will future-proof your house, it will future-proof your media player, it will, it will ensure compatibility, it will be amazing, and and you, the other thing is you compare it with an IR remote, and I'll get to that in just a second, because speaking of IR remotes, the one problem I have always had in the studio, and anywhere, really anyone's house, this is not just, I shouldn't pick on them, anyone's house, most people don't do this, is there is no universal remote. They all have multiple remotes for their, their media control, and so you literally, you're sitting down, and you're like, you're struggling, like, where's this remote, where's that remote, and how do I get this one on, and it's just, it's a pain. And uh, I hate change. And that also means I hate trying to find which button is what on various TVs. So I sit in the living room and in the living room to go back, it's the button over on the left in the upper right hand corner As compared to the one in the bedroom. It's the one in the lower left hand corner is the one downstairs. That's the one at the very bottom. If you hit the one in the left hand corner, though, that completely it's Cody. All, it's ah, yuck. I just it's a mess. I want one button. I'm sorry, I want one remote. I want the same remote with the same button layout, the same configuration everywhere in the house so that my fingers can muscle memory the remotes. I can learn what play is, I can learn what back is, I can learn what menu is. And I have landed on one of my favorite remotes. And this is coming from somebody who has uh, a a $500 URC remote in his basement for his home theater. So I have some experience to compare this thing to. And this, this, this remote, it's $25, it's available on Amazon. We'll have a link in the show notes. This remote is absolutely fantastic. Not only is it able to learn by you just punch in a code and then it learns that, you know, then it just has a button map for that. You can also, if you don't have a button map, you have some obscure device. You can teach it IR code, so You can you can learn from the existing remote. So there's literally no IR device in the world this thing can't work with. Oh, and by the way, just so we're clear, they also have Kodi. It has a Cody program. Uh, pre-programmed button set for you. So there's that. Unlike the Harmony, you don't need an internet connection. You don't need any special windows software. You don't need any recharging bases. None of that nonsense. It's a $25 remote works flawlessly. And the the buttons feel great. It has a, it has a, it has all the buttons that you'd need for major devices. It has generic buttons like ABC and D if you want to, if you want to map them to, you know, specific functions that, that wouldn't ordinarily have a button. Uh, it, it just—it's a very good professional-grade remote for twenty-five dollars, and I, I, I cannot speak highly enough about it. One of the things that really drove home to me why it's so nice to have a standard remote is when I went from my Western Digital Shield, uh, Western Digital Shield. when I went from my Western Western Digital TV Live up to the Nvidia Shield. One of the things I noticed uh, very you know, very early on was that I didn't have to relearn all of these buttons because all the buttons that worked on my, my Western Digital, the same button layout worked on the Shield. I just had to program, you know, the IR commands for the Shield. But my my hands can go to the same buttons. Absolutely fantastic. Um, so, yeah, it's that good. And uh, I've heard some people talk about the 2015 version. And, again, do not compromise. Don't sell yourself short. The 2017 has full audio support. So you get uh, Dolby True HD. You get Atmos DTT DTS, sorry, HD DTS X by the 2017 Pro Edition. And if I can sell you on the Shield, at least don't sell yourself short and go with a Cody box, something like a Raspberry Pi 3. Still feels a little hacked together to me, but it works. Elijah is calling from Idaho. Hi, Elijah, welcome to the Ask Noah Show.
4: Hey, Noah. All right. So, as you know, I, I work for a, a Wisp, and we were setting up a couple servers the other day. And uh, this friend of mine, he he was setting up these servers, and he used VMware, uh, vSphere, ESXi, and he was using the free version. And I was like, well, what's the free version? And he was like, well, they they removed the restrictions. So the free version now, you can have unlimited CPUs and unlimited RAM, unlike before. And uh, he loaded the ISO up, and he put, gave it a static IP and logged into the web UI, and it was, it was gorgeous, it was easy, and it was simple. So my question is, is why should I learn and use you know, Linux, KVM, D, and why should I use that instead of this VMware ESXi? Because it, it looks pretty, pretty easy and pretty simple.
1: Yeah, sure. So a couple of things. So first of all, uh, ESXi is very expensive. Um, they do have a free version that you can use, but when you start, we start getting into some of the more advanced, advanced stuff, clustering, stuff like that, it becomes very, very expensive. Uh, it's some of the most expensive software out there. But on top of that, um, there are plenty of software projects that imitate or that, that, that. You know, Libvert D is really just kind of the base. It's That's like saying, you know, we have Ubuntu, and then on top of Ubuntu, we have, you know, uh, Unity, which is the, the controlling environment for, you know, stock Ubuntu. And there are plenty of projects that have popped up that will do all of that stuff. So the most notable one is Overt. And we had the Brandon uh, Johnson on from Red Hat talking about Overt and how it can do all of the stuff that VMware does, has a web interface, just click on the button, deploy whole nine yards, you could also use something like Proxmox, which I've gotten uh, some flack for, for not pushing harder on the show. And it's a great project. I have nothing against it. Again, built, runs on libvertd, has a web interface, has all the fancy little things. that uh, uh, Overt and Proxmox also support clustering. And you'll never incur a fee. So my answer to you is basically you can do all the things that you would do on VMware, except with a lower price tag, more flexibility. And unlike the all the folks that were on CrashPlan, you'll never have the rug ripped on, on, out from under you. that answer your question?
4: Yeah. So, so it is, um, is over like just an ISO that I can load up. Um, I don't know if it's an I- a package that I run
1: on. Yeah. Top? It's, it's a package that you'd run on top of CentOS or Red Hat. So you'd have to give that, uh, you'd have to get, give that a shot, but there are some pretty, there's Red Hat has some pretty fantastic documentation. So I would, uh, I would give that a shot, uh, head over there and, and take a look at that. Nathan is calling from New Mexico. Hi, Nathan. Welcome to the Ask Noah show.
6: Hey, no, thanks. Um, Pretty much a, uh, a fairly simple, you know, beginner type of question. What I've got going is uh, I'm about to build a new PC and it's going to be one of those over the top. I haven't built a serious rig in a long time and I have the ability to, I'm going to, but I'm looking at hard drives. What, what I what I do is I, I've got a dual boot and given what Intel or Microsoft and everybody's doing, it's going to have to be Windows 10 uh, and I run Solus Linux. So okay. I'm looking at hard drives, and 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 I I just threw a uh, M.2 drive on my laptop. It's great, love it. Uh, I want to try to keep my box as simple as possible, so I'm going M.2 drives. i try not to put any hard disk in there. So I've run out of room with a terabyte drive and some gaming and stuff like that. So can you give me kind of an idea why you'd go one direction or the other? You know, say a, a two two gig drive in there or separated into a, uh, I'm sorry, not a two gig, a, a terabyte drive. What, what would be some of the reasoning to go one way or the other between a one terabyte drive per OS or a single large two terabyte?
1: Sure. So the advantage of having a single, the, the, the problem is with splitting them up is that you have to know now what your use case is going to be six months from now or eight months from now, or you're going to run into a problem, right? So basically, having sure. all one drive means you don't have to decide where all that data is going to go. You can just make one big data drive, make it NTFS, and both Linux and Windows would be able to write to that drive no problem. Um, as to why you'd want to split them up, if you split them, if you split them up. You know, ext4 or XFS is going to be a much better file system than NTFS, and so your data is going to consequently be way more secure. In fact, Chris just got bit by an NTFS formatted drive that that you know that cropped out on him. Um, you can usually recover; it's not the end of the world. But uh, that it, that would be the reason to to split apart. Um, does that answer your question?
6: Yeah, mostly. I, I I just wanted. I was under the impression that there were some some kind of background reasons why. Uh, you know, let's say let's say you know Windows is running NTFS and I'm going with uh, Ext4 or something with with Solus. There were reasons to keep Sol- Solus stuff saved that way as opposed to sharing and, and having Solus at you know access the NTFS uh, partition for you know for files. I, yeah. I think that I'm going to use a, a small NAS appliance uh, to kind of keep you know actual file backup separate and also to make myself learn that because like i said i am i'm a complete beginner so sure i just wanted to make sure that there wasn't, I, there wasn't it doesn't sound like i'm really missing anything i just wanted to see if one would be a preferred direction over the other and i think i think i am going to go with the the two separate drives you know pro s and uh whatever that what uh the ESP i think in UFI. <laughs> yeah <laughs> That's yeah, a new for thing sure. to me as well
1: for sure. Yeah, yeah, the, the separate drives is going to give you, you know, a lot better redundancy and a lot better data structure, especially I not a big fan of NTFS. Reggie is calling, uh, hey Reggie, I got about a minute. Go.
4: Yeah, I was looking at the IoT Ubuntu thing and uh running things like Raspbian and stuff on Raspberry Pi, but wanted to build a Kodi Cody box basically to run in my car. And I was wondering like, what is this whole snappy core thing about? And like, is there anything else like it that I would be able to use with a front end desktop environment?
1: Yeah. Um, I don't know as specifically as, I mean, a snappy core is a, is a great thing. There's a lot of use cases for it. I don't know that I would use it specifically for a media center in a car. Um, I'd probably just load open elect right onto the box. And if you're looking at a car, actually, one of the things that I'm looking at replacing my wife's suburban is actually open elect on a raspberry PI three, the, again, the, the, uh, it's not as responsive as the shield, and the Wi-Fi sucks, but if it's in a car, I probably don't need data anyway, and I'm just playing local media. Hopefully that answers your question. I'm sorry we're, we're a little tight on time. Um, hey, guys, next week, we talked about home theater this week. Next week, we are having a guest on the show. He's a good friend of mine, and uh, he's actually he's going to be in Grand Forks actually in a couple of months, and, and we're going to be working on a speaker project, um, but it's uh, Mr. Bob Carver from the Carver Corporation, uh, and then Sunfire, who builds high-end home theater systems, very high-end amplifiers, very high-end home theater processors. He's going to be with us next week. We'll have a link in the show notes to an article called The Carver Challenge, Uh, so make sure to read that before next week. Huge thanks to Ben, our producer, Sarah, our call screener, our video editor, we'll hand you off to Crosspoint, coming up next on Logos Radio, KEQQ, 88.3, LPFM, Grand Forks.